Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August, not August, whoops. Uh, it is April the 6th in California. Um, it's late morning in California, and all over the world, there are stories about one kind of violence or another, one kind of terrorist movement or another. Um, the, uh, the, the English uh, newspaper, left-leaning newspaper, The Guardian, has a lead piece this morning about how the uh, far-right group Oath Enforcers in the United States are planning to harass uh, political enemies. Uh, meanwhile, there's a report out about uh, the rioters on January the 6th in Washington, D.C. Apparently, uh, uh, the, the research suggests that many of these people were driven uh, as white people, quote unquote, uh, they were a war, and I'm quoting from the Times here. They were awash in fears that the rights of minorities and immigrants were crowding out the rights of white people in American politics and culture. So, the suggestion is that January 6th was uh, a white riot or a white rebellion or a white form of treason. Uh, meanwhile, white evangelical resistance to the vaccine effort in the United States, as the Times reports, is also building. On the other side of the world, there's a different kind of violence, but perhaps in some ways similar. Uh, there was an ISIS siege in Mozambique. Here we have a map for those of you who don't know where Mozambique is. It borders on uh, many countries, Tanzania, Malawi, Zimbabwe. It's in the southwestern part of Africa. Uh, the violence was appalling. Uh, according to the Financial Times, this Islamist attack in Mozambique resulted in many people hiding in the sea. And here we have uh, a chilling image of people uh, writing help uh, outside their house as a response to this violence. Uh, most people won't necessarily think that there's any connection at all between ISIS violence in Mozambique uh, and, and, and white violence in Washington, D.C. But my guest today may disagree. Uh, Sarah Kamali has a new University of California Press book out, an interesting book called Homegrown Heat, Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War against the United States. Uh, Sarah, is there any connection between, at least in conceptual terms, between what happened uh, in January in Washington, D.C., and what's going on in Mozambique uh, this month? Hi, Andrew. I'm so glad to be here with you uh, this afternoon. Um, certainly, there are connections uh, between January 6th and and uh, militant Islamism, both militant Islamist movements, um, both uh, within the United States and and uh, internationally. Um, what we can see is that there is a sense of victimhood and grievance, and ultimately a demonization of whomever is deemed the other in order to justify violence, and um, that 
that initial report, I think that was the New York Times that you um, highlighted uh, discussing why January 6th attackers, the motivations. And um, you mentioned that there was a, seeming, a perception of a threat um, from immigrants and also I think people of color the, with the articles probably quoted. And in my book in chapter three, there's a reason why I name it hashtag white genocide is because the grievances specifically for white nationalists and those who um, took part of the insurrection on January 6th earlier this year are very much um, supported by the idea that um, anyone who is considered a person of color and essentially non-white is a threat either um, economically through the taking of jobs or even just by their very existence in terms of outnumbering um, uh, white people and white Americans. Um, and there is this concept uh, within white nationalism that is called white genocide. And while that's self-explanatory, essentially that blames people of color for any type of grievance that um, these white nationalists may have. As you say, uh, these people, and I, and I use that word carefully, um, have a, a common sense of uh, alienation. I'm quoting you here from your book. Um, you write, though they have different visions for the United States, both white nationalists and militant Islamists broadly share a sense of alienation in a world gone awry, a narrative of victimhood and disenfranchisement, and a self-perception of righteousness. Is there any truth to any of that? I mean, are these people genuine victims of history? They share a sense of victimhood. And I think that's very important because what I strove to do in the book, and I think it's very important for us to understand, um, there's a there's a demonization and a politicization of beliefs and, and of identity politics, and any politics is arguably identity politics. But what we cannot do if we're going to be able to um, counter white nationalism and um, other types of security threats in the United States and around the world is pejoratize it or or, or demonize um, demonize it. So we can't play by their rule book. Um, but what I would say is that the sense of grievance, the sense the the grievances that both white nationalists and militant Islamists do have is very much born from a certain understanding of domestic and foreign politics, um, as well as history and current events. So if you're looking at it from a certain angle, and and um, I talk, I write about empathy a lot in, in the book, um, is um, it, it can be very much understood to be a righteous and um, sacred and or holy, holy war. Uh, one other thing you note in the book, bringing these two groups together, and you also, to be fair, you you said you, you have a long um, section on, on why they're different, but you mm -hmm. you suggest that um, that they share a strong element of misogyny, uh, the enforcement of hostility towards women who violate patriarchal norms and expectations. Some of the ISIS violence against women. We had a, a, a show uh, in on the uh, on uh, the, um, the the hostage uh, the girl hostages in in Nigeria uh, recently. Mm -hmm. Some of the violence against women is appalling. Uh, 
Uh, is it as true on the right wing amongst white nationalist Americans? I, I know from some of the images from January 6th that some of the quote-unquote terrorists or activists in, in January 6th were female. Mm-hmm. Well, when I say that there's an element of misogyny, that doesn't necessarily mean that women cannot take part. So women are both perpetrators of violence, but also very much victims of violence. And even their roles as perpetrators of violence um, within both white nationalism and militant Islamism is really because they are... Um, it's it's just um, is an example of misogyny because of how they are weaponized. So women, particularly within white nationalism, um, are are viewed as as vessels of of reproduction. And um, even the 14 words, which I'm not sure how familiar your viewers are, but there's a very famous, um, which has now become a slogan essentially of, of white nationalist groups tying them all together. 14 words uh, was penned in 1988 by a very prominent white nationalist ideologue, David Lane. And um, it states, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And there is this element that women are essentially the purpose of, of, of women is to solely reproduce and also to support, um, to support the white nationalist cause. And we also see that within, we see um, them as targets of violence in terms of incel culture and um, arguably the most recent attack um, against Asian Asian American women that would that just uh, the tragedy that just happened a few weeks ago but um, the demographics for January 6th specifically um, show that women very rarely are uh, actors of violence but they have played a role in terms of organization even though they're not quote unquote on the front lines but uh, women have been very much involved on both and within both um, ideologies um, in terms of organizing recruiting and proselytizing uh, your book begins uh, with a poem uh, you inscribe this Randolph Bourne poem from 1916 about America. America is a unique sociological fabric and it bespeaks poverty of imagination not to be thrilled at the incalculable potentialities of so novel a union of men. Is your book in, in some ways an attempt to uh, seize back uh, the multicultural identity of America from white nationalists? I talk a lot about, or I write a lot about reclaiming, reclaiming identities um, in terms of what white nationalists are are attempting to do across the world with many countries who um, are which they believe are, are are meant to be either divinely or otherwise white ethno states, and uh, that's an interesting point you bring up, Andrew. Um, I wouldn't say re. Uh, you know, seizing the multicultural identity, but I would say, I would say perhaps. Um, uplifting the diversity of all people and understanding how people um, of all skin colors have made uh, the United States and many nations around the uh, around the world um, great, and it's it's really diversity that has made America and other uh, and other countries great. Uh, Sarah, you um, in your bio you describe yourself, or you're described as a holistic justice activist. And the book uh, covers this issue of holistic justice 
what does it mean and, and, and how does it play a role in your uh, fix for the, uh, for the racism and sexism in America, this, this terrorism? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so as we've briefly, briefly touched upon in our conversation, that um, there are many isms, essentially there are many types of oppression uh, that are leveraged and also support the ideologies of white nationalism, militant Islamism. And of course, the book covers this in, in great detail. So it's not only racism, which is essentially um, discrimination due to skin color and physical appearance, but it's also um, discrimination, essentially oppression due to one's gender identity, um, as we've seen uh, many times with the misogyny. Um, it's also queerphobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. Um, discrimination based on nationality. And so holistic justice really is um, a move uh, a move from anti-racism to anti-oppression in order to uh, counter the complex constellation of both white nationalism, militant Islamism, and understand that these types of security threats can, will not be able to be effectively addressed until we understand these ideal these militant ideologies as um, targeting many uh, different types of people who are quote unquote the other. And so holistic justice specifically is focused on um, empathy, again, but using the term and uh, using the, the, the word empathy, not to mean understanding the worldview of uh, the terrorists about whom I write, but understanding the histories and, and the dynamics of how um, different communities um, over decades, if not centuries, have come to make America and many other countries um, what it what they are today. So understanding that there's not just a, a Black history of America, for example, but there's also um, a Latinx history, there's an Afro-Latinx history, etc. There's an Asian Pacific Islander history, there's a disability history. There's all different types of histories, and it's not until we respect and recognize the multiplicity of, and the diversity, again, the uplifting of that di diversity of um, the United States, um, in particular, in the, in the context of, of the, this book, that we will be able to address the underlying white supremacy um, that allows white nationalism to essentially, essentially flourish. And then the other component of holistic justice, so we have empathy, but then we also have what I call anti-oppression. And that is uh, a more active role in terms of solidarity between all of these historically marginalized communities in order to understand that while their histories and while their, while their identities may be um, uh, separate and distinct and rightly so, that it's when we come together as a uh, grassroots movements um, throughout history are the ones that have effectively enacted change. And anti-oppression is a call for that community solidarity. I wonder if uh, your your notion of uh, holistic justice is a euphemism for a critique of what you call white liberals. Uh, you're obviously hostile in, in your book to, to white nationalism and forms of political violence, but it seems as if uh, the real polemic in your book is a critique of, of white liberals. You talk about white liberal complicity uh, and suggest that the real problem perhaps in America is that many white liberals don't recognize their whiteness so that they are somehow implicated 
um, in uh, in this white nationalism? What's the role, Sarah, of a white liberal? And what exactly is a white liberal? Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that the white liberals don't recognize their whiteness. I would say that perhaps white liberals have much more agency and um, um, ability to enact change. And I, the that section in the book is a call particularly to white liberals um, in order to harness their privilege and enact change for communities. Would be an example of a white liberal, Joe Biden, perhaps? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I would think that... Um, Anybody who is has that has privilege due to uh, being white and that whiteness itself is a fluid identity, um, and who is not doing as much as he, she, or they they could be doing, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in the education sector. Um, and as far as white liberals and defining what a white liberal is, I'm not actually the first person to. Um, it's not a term I came up with. I'm actually using the language of both. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, as well as uh, Malcolm X, and both of them separately towards the um, last years, essentially of their short lives, um, they were they 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 discussed the idea and roles and placed the onus of much of the civil rights movements at the time. And in terms of Malcolm X, the human rights movement, as you saw it, um, on the shoulders of white liberals. And um, in terms of reclaiming and re- and discussing diversity and uplifting and you know the concept of holistic justice is essentially um, taking that idea and uh, reframing it in order, in order, reframing it in order to uh, address current challenges. I get the Malcolm X. I'm less convinced with the Martin Luther King um, because have of King's uh, cr- 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 Christian identity. Uh, one of the have interesting things about the, um, the book, letter, uh, the uh, well, but leaving King, it doesn't. Uh, uh, that was just a, a sort of a throwaway remark. Uh, leaving uh, leaving King, I was really intrigued uh, when you suggest that one of one of the opportunities in America is is quoting you reclaiming uh, Islam's I- in- integral role. Uh, you have uh, a really interesting section about um, uh, the roots of Islam in the United States being as old as the nation itself. What mm-hmm. role do you think Islam should play in America? How could it embrace uh, Islam or how could Islam embrace America uh, to make it a, a better country? So I, when we talk about Islam, there is, of course, many Islams. And as th- that's essentially one of the arguments of the book as well, is that just as many white nationalist evangelicals will essentially argue that they have the correct interpretation and the sole interpretation of Christianity, there are many people who call themselves Christian who would argue otherwise. And so perhaps a better question would be what role can the Muslim American community currently play and what role has it played? And um, as we know from history, and as as of course you just um, highlighted, um, Muslims have been have been in the United States and essentially coming across first um, as enslaved people and have essentially been a large part in uh, in, uh, terms of building this country and the institutions, etc. Um, so the history of Islam and the founding fathers were very well aware of Islam and read the Quran, as I also discuss. Um, and it's, again, part of recognizing that 
the uh, diversity of America is its strength. And in terms of the Muslim American community currently, um, specifically, um, we need to understand um, how we can understand each other as fellow human beings rather than uh, judge each other, prejudge each other um, based on our religion as, as quote unquote, um, would be terrorists as the 9-11 paradigm would have. So we are in, currently at the crossroads now where many of the national security institutions that were founded in the wake of 9-11 now have to address the January post-January 6th paradigm. And uh, the book is uh, offers a, a way forward in terms of how, how to do that. Yeah, uh, as you say, the, the way forward you suggest seems to be a or at least you argue, a, a, a federal statute criminalizing domestic terrorism. Uh, you I suggest that there, there currently isn't one. Do you think that uh, uh, essentially ISIS and the, and, and the January 6th, the Oath Keepers uh, et al. should be put in the same legal basket? Mm-hmm. I think if actually I argue that a federal criminal statute would be in fact um, dangerous for the very communities of color that I would that I that I challenge should be uplifted, and the reason for that is again, if we look at history, um, that uh, communities of color, and I'm talking about many different communities, so indigenous communities at Standing Rock, for example, Latinx communities, um, uh, Im- immigrants in in general, and uh, Black communities, of course, an amalgamation thereof, have all been criminalized over time, and if, uh, specifically during the civil rights era in the late 50s and early 60s, again, talking about uh, Dr. King, he was one of the people who was surveilled by by um, uh, by domestic security agencies at the time. And so a federal criminal statute would only serve to penalize and criminalize and continue this um, erroneous notion that there are certain people, there are certain communities that are naturally prone to violence, which we know is not the case. Sarah, a couple of quick questions. Um, the you, Your book was written, I think, or a lot of the book was written while Donald Trump was president. We've had many shows about Donald Trump uh, here. We have an image of Carlos Lozado, the uh, Washington Post book reviewer. His book, What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. Uh, as I said, you write a lot about Donald Trump in the book. His 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 dark shadow seems to to have had a, a dramatic intellectual emotional impact on you. Um, how much permanent damage? Well, like like many of us, how how much permanent damage do you think Trump and his minions have done to the United States? I would say that. That has yet to be told, but in terms of how he, I would I would I see him more as a warning sign rather than as a um, as a sledgehammer in terms of the damage. Um, and I would say that he is a, a a warning sign because it shows or his presidency and his actions and his rhetoric. Um, we are now seeing the the fallout in terms of the allowance of um, quote unquote hate crimes, which could arguably be, you know, terrorist actions. Um, many people don't even want to classify them as hate crimes, for example, um, which is a different conversation. But in terms of um, 
his his presidency has has really forced us and i hope it forces us to rethink what kind of america we want this country to be as well as what what should the discourse be when it comes to diversity and how do we uplift communities and what actions can we take in order to um uh, forge uh, links of solidarity across communities that have been historically marginalized so on the one hand while his presidency has perhaps allowed a lot of um, um, vitriol towards towards whomever is deemed the other. It is also, I hope, burned us, um, including white liberals, uh, to think about how we can come together in order to amplify the voices and the um, stories and the lives of people who don't necessarily have uh, who have been who have been marginalized over time, Sarah? One person I think who would share your critique of of white liberals is Kahindi Andrews. who's an excellent writer. He's been on the show recently. Um, his new book, "The New Age of Empire: How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World," is quite controversial. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, again, it's perhaps not the only kind of book of its type, but it's 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 having an influence. Uh, what Andrews did was very much place the United States and the colonization of the United States by white Europeans um, as part of the European experience. My sense of your book, though, is you still see America, perhaps more than Andrews, as exceptional. You still have more faith in, um, in America than other uh, critics of colonialism and racism like Kahindi Andrews. Is that fair or am I, uh, am I exaggerating your faith, your optimism in America? I have faith. Perhaps what you're reading is my faith in humanity. Um, and I have faith that as history has taught us and as I see currently, there are many people who still care very much about, about um, others and about the state of our world. And um, I think that is a lot of reason to have hope. And it's also a lot of reason to actually go about and enact change in order to see the world that we wish we could live in. Because essentially, if it's not the individual, if it's not me who takes action, then why would I rely or expect somebody else to do it? And so again, um, holistic justice, and that's what holistic justice is essentially a call um, for each individual to enact uh, positive change in his, her, their communities. Well, perhaps another way of describing holistic justice is, uh, as you use the E word, empathy. We had um, Sherry Turkle, the distinguished MIT a psychiatrist on the show recently. She has a new autobiography out called The Empathy Diaries. In mm -hmm. some ways, perhaps... Uh, um, uh, Sarah, your new book, Homegrown Hate, Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War Against the United States, is a more political application of, uh, uh, of empathy. I think it's an interesting read, and, and, and it brings together worlds that people don't normally associate in a very provocative and erudite way. So I want to congratulate you on the book. Uh, I know you're in Santa Barbara at the moment, like me in California, locked inside. Probably rather painful being locked inside in Santa Barbara. You can't go on the beach. Uh, you've got lots of books behind you. What else should people be reading in addition to homegrown hate, Sarah, as we hopefully get towards the end of this pandemic? 
Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Andrew, so much for your kind words. Um, I do have a few suggestions. Um, let's see here. There are many things to read, but first I would suggest um, White Rage by Carol Anderson. Yeah, Carol's uh, an old friend and she's been on mm -hmm. the show. So, Carol, if you're watching, hi. <laughs> hi, Carol. And uh, there are many books that have recently come out, but um, these are the ones that I um, have on my shelf. So I'm, uh, the other one is the An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Let's see, you can see the author's name there. And then the uh, there are quite a few here, but perhaps I would suggest also uh, Queer in Asian America. Nice. Well, you got a lot of reading there, Sarah. A real <laughs> honor to have you on the show. Keep well, keep safe, and keep making these interesting connections. Uh, and uh, next time you have a book out, we'll have to have you back on the show. Sarah Kamali, author of Homegrown Hate, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew. Take care. Best wishes.